السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh past five weeks we've been reading the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma from Sahih al-Bukhari in, in relation to the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam and his family his son Ismail alayhi salam and Ismail salam's mother, Hajar radiyallahu anha, and their emigration to the barren valley of Mecca, <coughs> where they eventually settled, and after some time, the Prophet Ibrahim and his son Ismail salam both built the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We studied the whole of the Hadith and there were many references to both the House of Allah and the well of Z- the water of Zamzam. And I did promise during the Hadith that I would reserve discussion or I would postpone the discussion of both the Kaaba and Zamzam till after we well till the end. So now that we've completed the hadith, today, inshallah, uh, as a continuation of the commentary of the hadith, I hope to discuss a few things about the virtues and the history of the House of Allah. And inshallah, next week we'll discuss the water of Zamzam. One of the reasons for not going into too much detail during the hadith is that it would have just prolonged it. So it was better to complete the hadith first, and it still took five weeks. And now we can speak about the Kaaba. Like with most topics in the Quran and the hadith, the subject of the Kaaba is vast, and I would not be able to encompass most, let alone all of its details, in just one session. So I'll try to cover as much as possible. Parts of it may be 
repetitive, repetitive in the sense that most of us already know a bit about the Kaaba and its history and some of its virtues, so it would, for such people it would simply be a repetition. But, and they may find some of the details and explanation rather simplistic, but I have been specifically requested to keep in mind those who don't know much about the history of the Gaba at all. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the word Gaba twice in the Holy Quran. Hadyan Balig al Gaba and Jalallahu al Kaabat al Bait al Haram Qiyam al Dinas. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the Kaaba by its name twice in the Holy Quran. And what exactly is the meaning of the word Kaaba? Well the word is actually related to two meanings, meaning it actually encompasses two meanings. In Arabic, Kaab means to rise and to protrude. This is why the heels, sorry, the ankles are referred to, well, each ankle is referred to gab because it protrudes and sticks out from the rest of the leg. So anything which protrudes and rises, well, anything that protrudes is referred to uh, as gab or a gab. Also, it sounds rather coincidental, but even in Arabic, one of the meanings of gab is something which is squared or cubic. So, a cube. So, gab, cube. So, it's actually related to both meanings. And the Kaaba in Makkah al-Mukarramah, when it was built, the Arabs always referred to it as the building with four sides. So much so that the earlier Arabs, it's actually been mentioned that out of respect for the Holy Kaaba, in and around the Kaaba in Makkah al-Mukarramah, we're talking about the earliest of the Arabs, they all ensured that their homes were built round and circular and not as a square or four sides, so that they could always distinguish their own earthly homes from the cubed Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it was only later that one of them broke this tradition and then most people followed him. So it's of note that the earliest Arabs actually built their homes differently to the Kaaba. They made sure that they were circular and round and that was out of respect for the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, that's it. It's just a simple protruding cube-like structure. And just like water, there are all kinds of drinks in the world. Many different potions and mixtures and flavours and textures, juices and extractions of fruits and vegetables. And they may be healthy, beneficial, nutritional, colourful, and yet, and expensive, and yet nothing, nothing can match the simplicity of water. And the same 
can be said about the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a very simple structure. And indeed, there are other homes, other buildings and structures and edifices that tower above the Kaaba in heights, that are grand in their scale, that are magnificent in, their, in the complexity of their architecture, and yet no building on earth can match the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, despite, despite its simplicity. The Kaaba to other buildings is like water to other fluids, other juices. So it's a simple structure. Yet it's the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It houses in one of its corners Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone. And I'll say more about that later. So what exactly is the history of the Kaaba? When was it built? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Inna awwala baytin wudi'a linnasi lalladhi bibakkata mubarakan wa hudan lil'adameen. Fihi ayatun bayinatun maqamu Ibrahim. Allah says, verily the, ver- the first house that was established on earth for the people is surely that one which is in Bakka which is just another name for Mecca. Blessed and a guidance for all the worlds. Therein are clear signs. The stand of Ibrahim. Now here in this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the Kaaba was the first house established on the earth. So does that suggest that it was the very first structure ever to be built on earth? Or does it mean the first house that was built and established for worship and for the guidance of mankind? So was it ever preceded by other houses, other buildings anywhere else on earth? There are two opinions amongst the scholars and throughout the history of Islam we're talking about the scholars of Tafsir and Hadith the famous commentators of both the Quran and the Hadith have always had two opinions regarding this one opinion is that indeed the Kaaba was first built by Prophet Adam السلام, some even suggested that the foundations were laid by the angels. And then from the time of the Prophet Adam السلام, the Kaaba suffered collapse, damage, or severe damage because of floods, etc. And over time it continued to be renovated by various prophets السلام, as well as various people. And according to this opinion, the prophets Ibrahim and Ismail السلام, merely raised the Kaaba again from its original foundations. So that's one opinion. The other opinion is that 
Although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the first house that was established for mankind is that one which is in Bakkah, referring to the Kaaba, the house of Allah. Although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it, this does not mean that it was actually the first structure on earth. Therefore, it wasn't built by the angels, nor was it built by the Prophet Adam alayhi salam. But it was only built by the prophets Ibrahim and Ismail And this is why their names are so prominently attached to the construction of the Kaaba. Furthermore, there is a clear narration from Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu in which it stated that he was asked specifically about this verse of the Qur'an. That Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu was asked that in the verse Allah says, indeed the very first house that was established for mankind. So he was questioned that does this mean there were no other houses before the Kaaba? So Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu replied by saying, no, no, there were other homes. But the meaning of the verse is, this was the first house that was established for the worship of mankind, for the guidance of mankind. One of the reasons why many ulama have argued for the validity and the preference of the second opinion, or the validity of this second opinion and its preference over the first, is that this narration from Ali ibn Abi Talib is actually quite authentic. So, from Ali radiallahu an, we know for sure that that's what he said. So, if Ali radiallahu an has given that explanation, that it must, it must be taken into account. Furthermore, there are no authentic narrations which suggest that the Prophet Adam alayhi salam built the Kaaba, or the angels built the Kaaba. Another reason is that if the angels built the Kaaba, and there, all the prophets, Adam alayhi salam, built the Kaaba. And then ever since then, various of the prophets and peoples continued to build or renovate the Kaaba. Then why does the Qur'an specifically and only refer to the prophet Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salam if they were just one of many who built the Kaaba, who rebuilt it or repaired it? or raised it and reconstructed it from its original foundations. So the fact that the Qur'an quite significantly and prominently attaches the names of the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail to the construction of the Kaaba, coupled with the fact that there are no authentic authentic narrations of anyone having built the Kaaba before Ibrahim these two facts as well as the other arguments suggest that indeed the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam, along with his son, they were the first people to actually build the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's another interesting question here, Imam Bukhari rahimahullah and many others, all relate to hadith from a number of companions, uh, well, from one companion, Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was asked, 
that what, which was the first masjid on earth? Ayyu masjid in ardi awwala? Which was the first masjid? So the Prophet said, Al-Masjid al-Haram. Then he was asked, Then which one after Al-Masjid al-Haram? So the Prophet said, Al-Masjid al-Aqsa. That the second masjid was Al-Masjid al-Aqsa. So the Prophet was asked, What was the time difference between the establishment of the Kaaba, the Al-Masjid al-Haram and Al-Masjid al-Aqsa? So the Prophet said, Forty years. So here the interesting question is, that if we argue that the first person to build the Kaaba was the Prophet Ibrahim then who built Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa 40 years after the Prophet Ibrahim So the reply is it was the Prophet Ibrahim's grandson, Ya'qub And according to some scholars, it was Prophet Ibrahim himself who laid the foundations of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa too just as he built Al-Masjid Al-Haram. <coughs> Moving on from this discussion of who actually built the Kaaba first, so let's go with this opinion that it was the Prophet Ibrahim salam and his son, the Prophet Ismail salam. How does Allah refer to the Kaaba in the Holy Qur'an? As I said, he calls it Kaaba twice. He also refers to it as al-bayt, meaning simply the house. Like here, inna awwala baytun wudi'a. That verily the first house that was established. Makan al-bayt, the place of the house. And he also refers to it as al-bayt al-atiq, meaning the ancient house. So it's referred to as Al-Bayt Al-Atiq, the ancient house. Allah also refers to it as Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the sacred masjid. As he says in Surah Al-Isra, Subhanallahi Asra bi'abdihi, Laylan min al-Masjid Al-Haram ila al-Masjid Al-Aqsa al-Ladhi barakna hawla, that glorified be Allah, who carried his servant by night from Al-Masjid Al-Haram, to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, from the sacred mosque to the, well, from the sacred masjid to the furthest masjid. Now, why is it called Al-Masjid Al-Haram? Haram simply means forbidden. It means a sanctuary. So originally the meaning of Haram wasn't negative. For us, the word haram is the antonym of halal, and therefore there's a lot of negativity attached to haram. But it's actually the other way around, in that the word haram denotes sanctity, sacredness, great respect, and prohibition. Prohibition in the sense that not that it's bad, but that it's too holy, it's too sacred, it's too grand and great for anyone to approach it. In many parts of the world you have 
for instance, you have the forbidden city. You have the forbidden, forbidden palaces. And in China, you have the grand, very huge imperial forbidden city where non-royals weren't allowed to enter. Now, why do I mention that? Because it will help us understand the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam related by Imam Bukhari and others from An-Nu'man ibn Bashir radiyallahu an, in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, أَلَا إِنَّ لِكُلِّ مَلِكٍ حِمَى وَإِنَّ حِمَى اللَّهِ مَحَارِمُهُ that know that every king has a sanctuary. Often this word hima is translated as a boundary, but it doesn't really mean boundary, it means sanctuary. So the meaning is that throughout history, the nomadic Arabs, the chieftains, as well as kings, they always had a forbidden area. And no one could enter into that forbidden area. So the Arabs, the Arab nomads, the chieftain of the tribe, wherever they would travel, the chieftain of the tribe would designate a certain area, even though it was just a temporary settlement. And that would be marked out. And that would be regarded as the chieftain's sanctuary. No one else could hunt in there. Similarly, imperial palaces, cities, areas. These were the hima, these were the sanctuaries where nobody could enter because they were forbidden. Why were they forbidden? It wasn't a negative connotation, but rather it was grand, it was regal, royal, too good for anyone to come close to. So this is what the Prophet ﷺ says, that indeed every king has a sanctuary. And Allah's sanctuary are his prohibitions. And then the hadith continues advising us to avoid the hima, the sanctuary of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's another discussion. But here, the meaning of al-haram is not negative in any sense. It means something which is so grand, so great, so good, so sacred, that it's forbidden. Forbidden in the sense like the forbidden palace or the forbidden city. Then, because of the prohibition, we then get the word haram being the antonym of halal. But again, it's not so much a negative that this is impure, that's why we call it haram. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the Prophet makes forbidden the impure things. So of course, one of the reasons for its prohibition is its impurity. But we don't call it haram because of its impurity. We should look at it this way, that it's impure, therefore Allah has declared it forbidden, and we regard it as being haram, because of the prohibition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the prohibition of Allah is so serious, is so great, that we should go nowhere near it. So one of the names of the Kaaba is, and, and, the, and its vicinity is Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the sacred masjid. 
So Allah calls it al-Baytul Atiq, the ancient house, al-Masjid al-Haram, the sacred masjid. He calls it just the house, Bayt. He calls it the Kaaba. So Sayyidina Ibrahim السلام, built the Kaaba with his son Ismail السلام, And we covered that in the last part of the hadith. And when they built it, how did they build it? Build it. Just father and son. And Allah says, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلِ That Ibrahim, and remember when Ibrahim and Ismail were raising the foundations of the house, and they were building the Kaaba, as they were building it, and upon its completion, they continued to pray to Allah, رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ That, oh our Lord, accept from us, verily you are all hearing, all knowing. I covered the commentary of... These verses, رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ Last week in great detail, so I won't repeat myself. After Sayyidina Ibrahim السلام, built the Kaaba with Ismail السلام, Ibrahim السلام, returned to Qan'an. And then he may have returned whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructed him or allowed him to do so. But after the time of... And then once they had built the Kaaba... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded both father and son. In fact, they prayed to Allah that, Oh Allah, show us our rights. Make us Muslims. And show us our manasik, our rites and rituals of pilgrimage. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed them and taught them the rights of pilgrimage to the house of Allah. And upon its completion, Allah also told Ibrahim السلام, That announced to the people, announce the pilgrimage to the people. They shall come to you on foot and upon every lean camel, from every deep ravine. So it's mentioned in the narrations that Ibrahim السلام, said, Oh Allah, who will hear me? Who will hear me? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, You announce. And some of the Sahaba, عنهم, including Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهما, himself, they relate this, that the, Ibrahim السلام, said, Oh Allah, who will hear me? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, that you make the announcement, you proclaim the hajj, the pilgrimage, and I will ensure that those who are destined to hear it will hear it. And Ibrahim made the announcement of hajj. And it's mentioned in this narration that every soul that is destined to visit the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Every soul, whether it was alive at that time or it was yet to be born, responded with the words Labbaik. And so when a person, even now or in the future, travels to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are responding to the call of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Now, this is actually quite similar, although it's, uh, it's, this isn't a report from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself. It's mentioned from some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, including Abdullah ibn Abbas 
radiyallahu anhum, and as I've mentioned, one of the principles is that Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhum, along with the other Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, if they relate something which cannot be of their opinion, then we accept that they must have heard something to this effect from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas and others about everyone responding to the call of Hajj from Ibrahim alayhi salam and saying Labbaik, this has a parallel in what Allah says in the Quran. That وَإِذْ أَخَذَ رَبُّكَ مِنْ بَنِي آدَمَ مِنْ ظُهُورِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّتَهُمْ وَأَشْهَدَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ قَالُوا بَلَىٰ That remember when your Lord extracted from the children of Adam their own children and progeny, i.e. from each generation Allah extracted the future generation. And this isn't in terms of birth, but right at the beginning of creation. And then Allah addressed all the souls that were destined to live. And he made every soul a witness over itself in respect of Allah. Saying to each soul, Alastu birabbikum, am I not your Lord? And every single soul replied, Bala, of course. This is why the recognition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the meaning of the hadith, that every child is born on nature. The, the very meaning of this hadith is that if the child is left in a pure state without being contaminated by family, friends, and environment, then that innate nature of a human being that pure, clean fitrah, it is predisposed to recognizing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah said, Alastu birabbikum, am I not your Lord? And every soul replied, Bala, of course. So just as every soul responded then with the words Bala, and recognizes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in a way, you can look at it like this. There is a Muslim in every human being just waiting to break out. Because man's inner nature, his innate core being, recognizes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, the recognition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is every human being's primordial instinct. Similarly, when Ibrahim السلام, made the announcement, some of the Sahaba عنهم, relate that, the Prophet, that every soul that was destined to travel to the house of Allah said Labbaik. And when it does embark on that journey, it's in response to that original call of Ibrahim. السلام, and the meaning of the words are beautiful. As Allah says, you make the announcement, How will they come to you? They will come to you on foot and on every lean camel from every deep ravine. And there's this image of 
the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the center of the valley of Mecca, surrounded by its mountains. And in that barren, on that barren valley, without vegetation, without any water except zamzam, people from all over the world using every means of transport, horses, camels, on foot, cars, planes, they converge from all corners of the earth onto the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the pilgrimage, all in response to the call of that noble prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam, who is, as I mentioned right at the beginning, in Islam, the greatest prophet after the prophet Ibrahim after the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the greatest prophet in Islam is Ibrahim alayhi salam. After the time of Ismail alayhi salam, the traditions of Hajj and Umrah and the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Tawheed continued. And they continued in a good, pure way, without being corrupted by shirk and polytheism or paganism. But gradually over time, as people became corrupt, as people strayed and veered from the straight path of their forefathers, idolatry set in, polytheism, paganism set in. And the original rites and rituals of Hajj and Umrah continued, but now they had accretions and many layers of innovations and idolatrous practices. So they were buried, the pure practices were buried in the rest of the idolatrous practices until the time of the Prophet Now as far as the Kaaba itself is concerned, after the time of Ismail we do know that the Kaaba was repaired and rebuilt on occasions by various people. Until the time of the Prophet and one of the virtues of the Kaaba is that it is a house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when the Prophet was about to enter the world, a great event preceded his coming. And that's what Allah refers to in Surah Al-Feel. Alam Till the end. I've commented in detail on this surah to so refer to the commentary of the surah. But before the time of Rasulullah birth, Abraha, the one of the governors and viceroys in Yemen, he decided to march on the Kaaba with the intention of demolishing it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Kaaba miraculously, and there's a very telling story of the Prophet grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. He was a chieftain of the Quraysh, and when, the arm, when he went out to speak to the army and negotiate, the, negotiate with the invading army, who were camped at some distance from Makkah al-Mukarramah, they had taken his camels. So Abdul Muttalib, when he met the, when he met Abraha and the others, he said to them, I've come to you to plead for my camels. 
So he was told that we thought you are the chieftain of the Quraysh, that you are wise, you are noble, and yet you seem to be so petty and so lowly that we are about to invade your city and demolish your temple, demolish your Kaaba, and yet you come here pleading with me, not for the Kaaba, but only for your camels. So Abdul Muttalib replied by saying that the, the camels are mine. That's why I'm negotiating with you and pleading with you about my camels. As for the house, the house has a lord who shall protect it. The camels are mine, I plead with you for my camels. As for the house, the house has a lord who shall protect it. So he was given his camels and Abdul Muttalib returned and he retreated to the mountains surrounding Mecca, overlooking Mecca along with the others. And then they witnessed the miraculous incident of the whole army being decimated by the birds of Abil. And that's what's referenced in Surah Al-Feel. Al-Feel. And as I mentioned, Surah Al-Feel and the next Surah, Surah Quraysh, Ilaf Quraysh, they are connected one after the other. And towards the end of that Surah, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? That let them, so let the Quraysh worship the Lord of this house. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention that to them? Is that the Quraysh, many of them were witnesses to the destruction of Abraha's army and the protection of the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they were, they were a witness to this miracle. And they were the first beneficiaries, the primary beneficiaries of all that the Kaaba and Al-Masjid Al-Haram had to offer. And yet that in their ingratitude, they refused to obey Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or accept Allah's message. So the Quraysh were a witness and they knew about what had happened on that occasion. In fact, that was one of their dating methods for the calendar. So they would, if they ever referred to something, they would say, from the year such and such, like it, according to, to the Muslims, Hijrah is the momentous event. So we say, in the 1436th year of Hijrah, Christians say, in the 1800th year of our Lord. So momentous events mark the beginning of a calendar. So for the Quraysh and for the Arabs, they actually marked the beginning of their new calendar from the year of the elephant. So they would actually say, Amul Fil, from so many years after the year of the elephant. So many years after the year of the elephant, in reference to the story, well, to the miracle of the whole army of Abraha being defeated and decimated in such a miraculous manner. So that was a precursor. And a glad tiding of the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Approximately 35 years later, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was 35 years old, one of the one of the tragic incidents that befell the Kaaba, and before I continue, I'd just like to mention something else. If the Kaaba is a house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how come it was damaged by waters, by water? 
by fire? How come it sustained severe damage so that it even collapsed on occasions, or it had to be demolished? It's the house of Allah. Why wasn't it consistently kept miraculous? Before I speak about the house of Allah, in order to understand this, let me mention the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ was the most beloved Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But when Allah sent him into the world, Allah did not keep his whole life a continuous, consistent miracle. If he had, just as Allah mentions in a verse, that if we, the, the Quraysh demanded that why, if God wanted to send us a prophet, a messenger, why did he send a man like us? What kind of messenger is this? That he actually eats food and he walks and shops in the marketplaces. That's the actual translation of the verse. We want to see an angel. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers their question by saying, if we had sent an angel, they would have suffered the same confusion and they would have suffered the same reticence and the same reluctance to believe as they are doing in the Prophet Muhammad The more we raise the threshold, the greater their disbelief. So if Allah wished, Allah could have sent an angel. But Allah didn't. Allah always sent human beings as prophets of Allah. Because that was the test. This whole world is a test. If Allah sent an angel, where's the test? If every day of the prophet's life was a miracle, where's the test? The test can only be if any messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leads a normal life. And then calls for people to believe in him. But there are signs to aid them, to help them, to encourage them. A few miracles here and there. Their honesty, their integrity. Different signs. These signs aid and help. But people still have to make a choice. If the evidence was blinding, if the evidence was absolutely overwhelming, then where's the test? This is why many choose to believe just before they die. Meaning, when, they, when a person passes away and if they are still conscious, what they call near-death experience is the life of the hereafter and the afterlife and the other realm opening up. 
And if a person, this is why we refer to it as Alamul Ghaib, meaning the realm of the unseen. And this is why Allah says in the Quran, Yu'minuna bil Ghaib, they believe in the unseen. That is a test of their faith. If it's all seen, if the barriers between us and the Akhirah, if the barriers between us and the other world are removed, where's the Iman, where's the faith, where's the test? Then there is no Iman. This is why when, when those veils are removed between this world and the next, there is no acceptance of Iman. Because it's not Iman, it's not faith anymore. So this is a test. The prophets of Allah were sent into the world as human beings. They lived, they ate, they drank, they suffered injury, they were ill, they suffered fever. Look how our own Rasulullah he once broke his leg, he was poisoned, he bled. He lost his teeth in battle. He was injured. He passed out. He was unconscious in his final days. He passed in and out of consciousness. He was grieved on occasions. He suffered many different calamities, bereavement, physical pain, emotional pain. The pain of loss. So Rasulullah was sent as a messenger of Allah. And there is no better verse to describe this than that verse in the Quran where in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Uma Muhammadun illa Rasul. Qad khalat min qablihi al-Rusul. Afa immata aw qutilan qalabtum ala aqabikum. Uma yin qalib ala aqibayhi falan yadurra Allah shayya. This verse was revealed after the battle of Uhud. Because in the battle of Uhud, as I said, he was injured. And in the confusion, because the Prophet ﷺ was retreating to the safety of the mountain along with a very small group of Sahaba who were protecting him, there was great confusion on the battlefield. In that confusion, word spread that he had been killed. As a result of which, some of the Sahaba عنهم, became demoralized. One or two of them even laid down their weapons. Others said, well, if he has passed away, there is no meaning to life after him. And they threw themselves into the battle. Later, they realized that, no, it was just a rumor, and he was, he was injured, but safe and well. After the battle, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse. What was the lesson? The lesson was that the Prophet ﷺ is important to you, without doubt. He is your guide, he is your messenger, he is your grand teacher, he is your prophet. But your faith is not in him, your faith is in Allah. So the Prophet ﷺ will be subjected to many of the normal trials and tests and occurrences of life, including possibly natural death, or even being slain in battle. But if that happens, if he dies or if he is killed, what will you do? Will you flip? 
Will you turn on your heels? So that was a lesson for the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And who understood this lesson? No one understood it better than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa passed away, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were greatly distressed, undoubtedly. And even Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was standing in the masjid threatening the congregation, saying, whoever dares to say that the Prophet has left this world, I shall strike his head, I shall kill him, I shall make an example of him. And he, he refused to accept, he refused to allow anyone else to accept. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu came. And then, having visited the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he spoke. And he, all he said was, مَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ مُحَمَّدٍ فَإِنَّ مُحَمَّدٍ قَدْ مَاتُ وَمَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ حَيٌّ لَا يَمُوتُ Whoever used to worship Muhammad then know that Muhammad has died. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And whoever worships Allah then know that Allah is alive, everlasting. And then he recited this verse of the Qur'an. When he recited this verse, some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, it was, of course the verse has been revealed. It was as though we never knew the verse before that. And they regained their composure. So by explaining all of this, what I'm trying to say is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for our test, anything he introduces into this world, even though it may be his, it may be, of course everything is his, but it belongs to him, it's attributed to him. Allah ensures that it is placed in the world subject to the laws of the world. So the Prophet ﷺ was placed on earth, he was subjected to the laws of the world. Of course there were some miracles, but a miracle wouldn't be a miracle if it was an everyday occurrence. A miracle is only a miracle when momentarily, temporarily, occasionally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala suspends the laws of nature and the universe and allows something to shine through on occasions. But not always, otherwise it wouldn't be a miracle. So this is the case with the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's only the house of Allah, not because his house is anything of Allah azza wa jal, but rather it's attributed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's an attribution of honor and esteem. And even though it's the house of Allah Azza wa Jal, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to, He allowed it to be protected miraculously. But apart from those few punctuated occasions in the normal timeline of earthly existence, apart from those few punctuated occasions, the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the prophets of Allah alayhi being on earth was subjected to the laws of the earth. And therefore, the faith of the believers is not in the bricks and the mortar. It's not in the building. It's not even in a person. And it's not even in the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rather, it's in Allah azza wa So, having explained that, the Kaaba, during the time of the Quraysh, it suffered damage because... There was a fire. Uh, a lady was trying to sense the Kaaba, meaning burn fragrance and incense in the Kaaba. And unfortunately, as a result, the, 
there was a fire and the fire consumed much of the Kaaba, so it was damaged. So the Quraysh decided to re, uh, rebuild the Kaaba. And even though they were pagans, they came together collectively, the different clans of the Quraysh, and they agreed that we will only build the Kaaba with our halal money. So, unfortunately, they never had much halal money. So their funds fell short. As a result of which, they had to literally cut corners when it came to building the Kaaba. They cut out two corners. I'll go back to that in a moment. But they rebuilt the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ was 35 years of age in Makkah al-Mukarramah. This is five years before the revelation of the Qur'an. And the Prophet ﷺ himself participated in the construction of the Kaaba. When the Kaaba was complete, now was the time for them to place the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone. What is a black stone? This is in the eastern corner of the Kaaba. If you imagine the Kaaba, I'm sure everyone has seen pictures and many of us have been there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take us there regularly. In fact, one of the... One, it's not the name of the Kaaba, one of the descriptions of the Kaaba is Mathaba. What's the meaning of Mathaba? وَإِذْ جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ Allah says, and recall when we made the house, i.e. the house of Allah, Mathaba. Mathaba means a place of oft return. What does that mean? That means anyone who goes to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees it, experiences it, and then returns home. He may return home, but he, leave, he or she leaves a part of their heart there. So that they are forever drawn to it. And they want to go back. And that's the meaning of mathaba. People go again and again and again. So that's the meaning of mathaba. That indeed our hearts are attached to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, this is one of the du'as of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. What was his du'a? Part of his du'a was that Allah caused the hearts of the people to incline and to flutter in love to the people of Mecca. So we, there is again a natural love for Mecca and of course for Medina. But the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such that it draws people again and again. One never tires of the house of Allah just as one does not tire of the Qur'an of Allah. One doesn't tire of reciting the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One doesn't tire of visiting the house of Allah despite its simplicity. So, what is the Al-Hajr al-Aswad? <clears throat> and as I said, if we picture the Kaaba again, just a cube with four corners. So it's not exact, but approximately the four corners are in the four directions of the compass. So one of the corners is eastwards. 
slightly south, east, east, but it's eastwards. One of the corners is northeast, north, northeast, and one of them is northwest, west, and the other one is southern. Now, all four of these corners have a name. So the eastern corner is Al Hajr al Aswad, the black stone, the corner of the black stone. The northeastern corner is referred to as, because it's in line with Iraq, so it's known as Al Rukn al Iraqi, meaning the Iraqi corner, and then Al Rukn al Shami, the Levantine corner, towards Sham, and then the southern one is pointing towards Yemen. The Arabs always refer to them with these names. That one is referred to as Al Rukn al Yamani. So all four corners originally are important. Why are they important? Because they are founded on the Qawa'id of Ibrahim alayhi salam. These are the four cornerstones of the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam. But the most noble part of the Kaaba is without doubt the Al-Hajr. Well, one of the most noble parts is the Al-Hajr al-Aswad. And what's so significant about the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone, it's mentioned in a hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi in his Sunan, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, and by others, that the Prophet said, the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone, is from Jannah. It is from Jannah. And it was whiter than snow. But the sins of mankind have darkened it. And in another hadith related by Imam ibn Hibban and ibn Khuzayma in their Sahih and by others, Rasulullah says that the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone, and the maqam of Ibrahim salam, both of them are precious stones from the stones of Jannah. And in order to place them on earth, Allah obscured their light. For if Allah allowed their light to shine, they would lighten up the east and the west. And this is actually a sahih hadith, it's an authentic hadith. So the al-hajr al-aswad without doubt is virtuous. And although the rest of the Kaaba was built from the rocks of Makkah al-Mukarramah, and even from pieces afar, the al-hajr al-aswad, was brought down by Jibreel alayhi salam and given to the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail alayhi salam. In fact, it was given to Is- it was there. Ismail alayhi salam collected it and then gave it to his father, and he placed it there. So the Al-Hajr al-Aswad is without doubt a virtuous stone, and one of the virtues of the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, and it's actually mentioned in the narrations that. Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhumah, he would struggle with people like nobody else. And he'd go to touch the stone. Someone asked him that, why? Why do you attach such importance to it? So he said, the touching of the stone forgives one's sins. It sheds one's sins. So there are, there are many virtues to the al-Hajr al-Aswad, the black stone. And... Even the Quraysh, they regarded the whole of the Kaaba with great uh, respect. They held it in great esteem and reverence. So when it came to replacing the black stone, every single one of them wanted the honor. So being Arab 
tribal Bedouin. They built the Kaaba of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They agreed on everything. They did it collectively. They even ensured that we will only build it with halal income. But when it came to the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, almost like the iron factor. I'll just recall something, so I'll share it. So I read an article once about lawyers in America referring to a phenomenon known as the iron factor. And these are all divorce lawyers. So divorce lawyers have a phrase in the US, the iron factor. And what does that refer to? So the explanation is that, it's what the lawyers were saying, that we deal with divorces. So in the divorce, it's very strange. You've got both the husband and the wife, soon to be divorced, sitting on opposite sides of the table. And despite all the rancor, despite all the bitterness, despite all the history, despite all the reasons for their divorce, they act very responsibly, apparently, and very dignified and very well composed. And they even sit opposite one another on the table. And they negotiate and they discuss properly. And they agree to everything. There's a bit of haggling, but eventually they agree to everything. And they agree to the division of the house, the division of the wealth, custody divided or joint custody of the children. And everything's going well until we get down to the smaller and smaller and smaller items. Then, when it comes down to something as small as the iron, yes, the iron to iron clothes, suddenly they start fighting. He says the iron's mine, and she says the iron's mine. And that's it. They apparently didn't disagree at all or argue about a million-dollar house, about the children. Yes, you can have the children. Yeah, you can have the children. And everything else. But when it comes down to the iron, a $10 iron, they break out into a huge fight. And they can never resolve it. And it's not just one lawyer. Apparently, there's, this, there's, a, whole, there's a common trend. So divorce lawyers in the U.S. refer to this as the iron factor. And psychologically, all that, all that happens is it's all building up in the background. And the iron is not the cause, it's merely the catalyst of the built-up anger which just bubbles beneath the surface and it takes the slightest disturbance for the volcano of rage to erupt. So, and hell hath no fury, illa akhireh. Normally when we, in Arabic, we say, we quote part of the verse and we say, illa akhireh, illa akhireh, how meaning till the end of the verse, or part of the hadith, and we say, illa akhireh, till the end. So, hell hath no fury, illa akhireh. So the Quraysh as well, they experience the iron fact. Despite all their disagreements and their rivalry, when they came to building the Kaaba, they all agreed. And they calmly and in a very composed manner, they did everything. Finally, when it came to the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, every one of them wanted the honor. And they started arguing. In and around the house of Allah. 
And it became so serious that within the short while, they all straight away, they made alliances. They drew, they dipped blood. The meaning of dipping blood is that there were so many clans, so the one clan said, we're going to fight you, and the other clan said, right, we with you, we with you. So they said, we, uh, we should enjoy the honour, yes, let's get together, let's battle with them. So they, they would get cups or bowls, and in the bowls, they would have the blood of a sacrificed animal, and they would dip their fingers in the blood, uh, and that would signify their joint alliance. So they wouldn't sign papers, they'd just dip their fingers in blood. So the Arabs used to have a phrase, غمسوا أيديهم, which simply means they dip their hands. So when the Arabs would say they dip their hands, they meant by dipping their hands in the sacrificial blood of animals, they forged alliances to fight alongside each other against their enemy. So they dipped blood, they dipped their hands, meaning in blood and forged alliances. And there was going to be there were, there were going to be raging battles. Then, in order to seize the situation, someone suggested that why don't we make the next person to, who comes into the masjid the arbitrator and let him arbitrate and decide what should be done. So because it was spontaneous, possibly a lot of them believed, fine, you know, uh, who are they going to get that everyone will agree to? So, fine, let them do it. And once they do that, we won't accept, then we'll fight. <coughs> so, they agreed, nominally. And then, lo and behold, the first per- they were all waiting. The first person to enter the masjid, al-masjid al-haram, was none other than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And this was five years before the revelation of the Holy Qur'an. So, because it was him, he was regarded as a sadiq, al-ameen, the truthful, the trustworthy. They all agreed. And the Prophet ﷺ had this unique ability to reconcile hearts. Even differing people. This is amazing. A judge is in a very difficult position. An arbitrator is in a very difficult position. Because he's on the edge of a blade. Whichever way he is inclined, or whichever way he passes judgment, he is cut. But the Prophet ﷺ had this unique ability, whether it was a marital dispute, or whether it was a family dispute, or a wealth dispute, or even a dispute between clans. He had the unique (coughs) ability to please everyone. And even if someone lost in material terms, the Prophet ﷺ assuaged his pain by such sweet words that those words meant more to him than anything else that he had lost. So when he came to Rasulullah ﷺ, he came up with a unique plan, which satisfied everyone. He said, all the clans should come together. And he brought a large cloth, and he placed the Al-Hajr Al-Aswad in the center of the cloth, and he got all the clans to lift the cloth with the Al-Hajr Al-Aswad in the middle, and they, in that way, carried it to the corner. And then the Prophet ﷺ, in the tradition of his great-grandfather Ibrahim salam, he took the Al-Hajr al-Aswad with his own hands and he placed, replaced it in the corner of the Kaaba. And in that way, not only did he enjoy the honor of replacing the Al-Hajr al-Aswad, but at the same time, he thwarted a possible war amongst the Quraysh over the building of the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
So when, when we witness and we hear of fights in and around the masjid, for the masjid, of course it's not good, but we do have a precedent. <laughs> now the, after the Prophet wasallam's restoring the Al-Hajr Al-Aswad, that was a time when it was rebuilt. Then the Kaaba would remain the same as it was, Till after the Hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and then indeed when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did Hijrah, and then even later he referred to the Kaaba and he faced Makkah al Mukarramah and he said, addressing Makkah or Makkah, You are the most beloved spot on earth to Allah, and to me, you are the most beloved place on earth too. And if it wasn't for the fact that your people drove me out, I would have never left. So Makkah meant a lot to the Prophet ﷺ and to the Sahaba anhum. And if they had any chance, they would have come back to Makkah al-Mukarramah. Why did they stay away after the Hijrah? I explained it in uh, a number of talks such as the Sincerity of Intention, my commentary on the Hadith of Hijrah. Uh, of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha so refer to it one of the reasons was we have never really been able to appreciate the significance of Hijrah Hijrah was a greatest deed they wanted to ensure that their reward and the complete and wholesome nature of their Hijrah their emigration wasn't affected in any way which meant that once they had left Makkah al-Mukarramah as part of Hijrah even though it was conquered even though it was the most beloved spot on earth to the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba anhum, in order to keep their hijrah intact and whole, they never ever returned to it. That that is remarkable. That is truly remarkable. And that was true for all of the Sahaba anhum. This is why the Prophet ﷺ never went back. He chose to reside in Al-Madinat Al-Munawwarah even after the conquest of Mecca. A lot happened, such as the, uh, in the sixth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ intended to travel again for Umrah, but he was prevented. And as a result, we had the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. He then did Umrah the next year, in the seventh year of Hijrah, which was known as Umrah al-Qadha. Then the next year, in the eighth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, embarked in the conquest of Mecca, and on that occasion he did Umrah again from Ji'rana, and then finally the Prophet ﷺ in the 10th year of Hijrah performed his farewell pilgrimage. And so in essence, the Prophet ﷺ did four Umrahs. One of them was incomplete, the Umrah of Hudaybiyah in the year 6, the Umrah to cover that in the year 7, the Umrah along with the conquest in the year 8, and then the Umrah along with his Hajj in the year 10. So he did one Hajj and four Umrahs. This is after the Hijrah. Before the Hijrah, it was an annual occasion to do Hajj. So there's a lot to discuss about that, but I won't go into any of that detail. And subhanAllah, uh, because of the we are in the period of Hajj, and people are traveling to Hajj, and Hajj will begin very shortly. So in as a, because it's relevant... And in commemoration of that, I commented on the hadith of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And then inshallah, after Hajj, after Eid, 
I hope to begin a very long hadith on the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So all the discussion about the uh, Treaty of Hudaybiyah, what happened in the year 6, etc., I will discuss in my commentary of the Hadith of Bukhari after the uh, after Eid, inshallah. So, <clears throat> but apart from that, one thing that did happen is after the conquest of Mecca, Umm al-Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam about the Hatim. Now, as I said, I'll go back to the construction of the Kaaba. Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he built the Kaaba, he built it in a certain way. And it remained like that, despite its renovation, etc., and its reconstruction. It remained in that form all the way till the 35th year of the Prophet ﷺ's life. Now, in that year, when the Kaaba was burnt, the, and the Quraysh rebuilt it, they insisted that it can only be built from their halal income, but their halal income was, very, was minimal. As a result of which, they actually did cut corners. And how did they cut corners? The Kaaba was rectangular rather than a pure square cube. So being rectangular, the two of the walls were much longer, but the Quraysh, because of their shortfall in the funds, what they decided to do is only build part of it. And they walled it off. And the one section that remained of the Kaaba, they marked it with a semi well, they marked it with a semicircular wall. And that's what we see till today. That is known as the Hatim, and they used to call it the Hatim as well. Now there are many meanings of Hatim. One of the meanings of Hatim, which is linguistically correct, is for the ulama and the students of Arabic is which means broken. So because that section is broken off from the Kaaba, it's removed from the Kaaba, it was called the Hatim. So they regarded it as being part of the Kaaba, but because of the shortfall in funds, they left it out and they didn't build it. Another change was that the Quraysh, in the 35th year of Hijrah, one of the things they did was that prior to that, what they did is that they raised the door of the Kaaba about two meters, just over two meters. And in doing so, and there was only one door, so in doing so, they controlled entry into the Kaaba. They only allowed who they wanted to. And whoever they wanted to prevent, they would prevent. So that was another thing they did. So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, she asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, is the Hatim part of the Kaaba or not? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, it is part of the Kaaba. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to her, that if it wasn't for the fact that your people meaning the Quraysh. If, the Quraysh. if it wasn't for the fact that the Quraysh have just recently embraced many of them, I would rebuild the Gab on the foundations and the structure of the Prophet Ibrahim. 
So what did he mean by not re... if it wasn't for the fact that your people have only recently embraced? What that meant is that this was after the conquest of Mecca, when the final remaining groups in Mecca al-Mukarramah embraced Islam. But after all, they were human beings. So if not too long after their embracing Islam, they were still coming to terms with the defeat, their defeat, with the conquest of Mecca, with the loss of their old faith, with this new religion. There were so many changes apace. Now, if all of a sudden, the Prophet ﷺ took axe and shovel, and began dismantling the greatest thing that even they held in their pagan years, which is the Kaaba, that may have been too much for them, utterly unbearable, and it would have affected them negatively. This hadith, this hadith of Bukhari and many others, and many years ago in my commentary of Bukhari, I explained this. What the hadith shows is that just because something is right, something is haq, one, one can't just barge and charge into any situation without consideration of the timing, the effect, the people, the circumstances. One has to be judicious. One has to be cautious. One has to exercise discretion. In another hadith, Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. Again, Imam Bukhari and others relate this. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. He heard the Prophet wasallam say that whoever says La ilaha illallah, he shall enter Jannah. So Abu Hurairah said to the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, should I not give the people the glad tidings of this message that whoever says La ilaha illallah, he will enter Jannah. So the Prophet wasallam said, of course. So Abu, it's a long hadith, I'm just shortening it. Abu Hurairah and went out and began announcing in the streets, whoever says La ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah. So he met Umar ibn al-Khattab So Umar said, what are you saying? Whoever says La ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah. So Abu Hurairah said, whoever says La ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah. Umar thumped him in the chest. So when he thumped him in the chest, Umar radiallahu an being Umar, and Abu Hurairah radiallahu an being Abu Hurairah, he said, I fell down on my posterior. So he said, I will complain of you to the messenger. So Umar radiallahu an being Umar radiallahu an, he said, here, come, I'll take you myself. <laughs> so he dragged him to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Abu Hurairah radiallahu an said, Ya Rasulullah, I was only telling the people what you told me to tell them, that whoever says, La ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah. So Umar thumped me. So the Prophet said, Umar, why did you hit him? Umar said, Ya Rasulullah, if he goes around telling everybody, whoever says, La ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah, then people will rely only on the shahadatain. Only on this statement, people will begin to rely on it. And they won't do any good deeds. Because the force with which he was repeating it. So the Prophet ﷺ then said, Yes, Abu Hurairah, don't tell people this. So the reason for explaining, mentioning this hadith, what greater truth could there be than the fact 
that whoever says la ilaha illallah shall enter Jannah. What greater truth could there be? What greater obligation could there be than to rebuild the house of Allah as it should have been rebuilt instead of leaving it in the building and in the structure and in the form built by the pagans of Quraysh? In their paganism. What greater truths could there be than these two? There are many, but look how great these two, two truths are. And yet the Prophet ﷺ was judicious, he was cautious, he was mindful, he was considerate of the people, of the timing, of the circumstances, of the impact, the effect, the repercussions. So there is a great lesson in that for us. Just because something is halal or something is sunnah or something is important or something is haq, we don't barge and charge into any situation shouting it's the truth, it's haq. Look at these examples of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he said to Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, if it wasn't for the facts that the, your people, meaning the Quraysh, had only recently embraced Islam, if it wasn't for that fear, that i.e. they would be deeply affected and it may unsettle them, then what I would do, I would rebuild the Kaaba according to the foundations and the structure of Ibrahim But he didn't do it. So because of that fear, he left it. So how was it left? What did he want to do? He explained to Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, what I will do, what I would like to do is, therefore, rebuild it on the foundations of Ibrahim alayhi salam. That means, remove the hatim and rebuild over the broken area. And then, not only that, and therefore restore all four corners, the, the two broken corners, restore them. One. Two, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, I would lower the door to ground level so people can enter. And I'd build another door so people could exit. But he chose not to do it. And then he departed from this world with the Kaaba being in the same state as it was built in the 35th year of his life with some omissions. Then, unfortunately, it remained the same. Uh, sorry, it remained, not unfortunately, but that was just what happened later. It remained the same throughout the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, radiyallahu anhum, and Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, radiyallahu Then, in the time of Yazid ibn Muawiyah, and thereafter, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, radiyallahu the famous companion, the son of Asma bint Abi Bakr al-Siddiq, and Zubayr ibn al-Awwam, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, what he did is that he, along with many others in the whole of the Islamic realm, they rebelled against Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, the son of Muawiyah, and they refused to pay homage to him or recognize him as a leader of the Muslims. So they refused. So Abdullah ibn Zubayr, in a way, declared his own khilafah. And his own rule in Makkah al-Mukarramah. And <clears throat> in part in Medina. Others joined him. Not only in Medina and Makkah. But in, in different parts of the Arabian Peninsula. And even in Iraq. But not in Sham. 
that where, where there was the Umayyad stronghold. Unfortunately, this is the part of the tragic history of Muslims, like all human beings, in a conflict. So what happened is Yazid ibn, Abi, Yazid ibn Muawiyah dispatched an army that attacked Medina and then marched to Mecca. This was in the 63rd year of Hijrah. And there what they did is that they actually laid siege to the city of Mecca with the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, under his leadership, others, in Mecca al-Mukarramah. And they attacked the city. They actually set up mangonels and catapults, and they began bombarding the city with stones, large boulders, and fire arrows. As a result of which, the Kaaba was actually bombarded and catapulted by Muslims themselves. And this was while some of the Sahaba عنهم, were alive. Abdullah ibn Zubayr And then, when Yazid died, the army was recalled to Damascus. So they broke camp, they lifted the siege, and they left. So Abdullah ibn Zubayr and the others were now safe in Makkah al-Mukarramah. But because the Kaaba was damaged severely, again by, by fire, just like it was damaged by fire in the 35th year of the Prophet Wasallam's life. So Abdullah ibn Zubayr decided to, it was a choice of either repairing the Kaaba or rebuilding it, so he decided to rebuild it because it was severely damaged. He felt, and others, he actually consulted the others, and they felt that it would be too risky to simply repair but they had to dismantle it and then reconstruct it. So they reconstructed the Kaaba. Now Abdullah ibn Zubayr having heard the hadith from his auntie, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha anha, about the Prophet wasallam's wish to rebuild the Kaaba according to the structure and foundations of Ibrahim salam, what he did is that he decided that since we are going, going to rebuild the Kaaba, we shall fulfill the wish of the Prophet So he rebuilt the Kaaba. How? According to the wish of the Messenger So he wasn't just square, but rectangular. All four corners were now on their original foundations. All four corners. And not only that, but the doors were lowered. There, was, there were two doors built. And both at ground level, people could enter and exit. And the Kaaba remained like that for approximately 11 years. As long as Abdullah ibn Zubayr was uh, present in Mecca. And he actually ruled Mecca for approximately 11 years, approximately, as well as other parts of Arabia. Then, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, sorry, Marwan ibn Abdul Malik, and others, the Umayyads, basically, they sent... Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, that tyrant, originally from Taif. And he came and he laid siege to the city of Mecca with a huge army. Again, the Umayyads were attacking the Sahaba عنهم, in Mecca al-Mukarramah. And again, they set up mangonels and catapults and they began bombarding the Kaaba. And unfortunately, on this occasion, many of the uh, people were massacred, including Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu an, and they even hung him. And his his mother, Asma radiallahu anha, the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, 
the the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and the eldest sister of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha Dhatun Nitaqain, the one who the lady of two sashes who helped the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam in hijrah and who did so much for Islam and the Muslims she had to actually go and at such an old age, because she survived for very, very long. She outlived her younger sister, Aisha radiallahu anha. She had to go and actually bring down the body of her own son. Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu anha. So, it was tragic. Now, when they retook the city, the Umayyads, Hajjaj he wrote to the Umayyad ruler and informed him that Abdullah ibn Zubayr has changed the Kaaba to what it was from the time of the Quraysh. So the Umayyads instructed him that you demolish it and rebuild it according to the time of the, uh, as it was before, because they didn't want the Kaaba to be as Abdullah ibn Zubayr built it. So they actually demolished it, or part of it. And they reconstructed it to exactly as it was during the time of the Quraysh. So part of the Kaaba was removed and it was left as a broken Hatim. The two doors were removed and only one was kept, only one was retained, but it was raised again so that only those who were allowed to enter could enter. And they did that almost out of spite. One, one suggestion is that they didn't know the Hadith, but that seems like a far-fetched explanation. The other is that they did it out of spite because they didn't want it according to the construction of Abdullah ibn Zubayr. When the Umayyads lost power approximately a hundred years later, approximately, and the Abbasids came into power who were their rivals, and the Abbasids were the children of Banu al-Abbas. Well, they were Banu al-Abbas, the children of al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. And the Banu Umayyah, they were the children of Umayyah. The son of Abdul Shams. So these are all from Banu Abd Manaf, the family of the Prophet So the whole of the Abbasid Empire and the whole of the Umayyad Empire was ruled by two families, ultimately from one clan. Two clans, but ultimately from one tribe, the Quraysh. And in fact, from one clan, the Banu Abd Manaf. So anyway, so the, when the Abbasids came to power, one of the Abbasid emperors in his heyday, he decided that, look, we should rebuild the Kaaba according to how the Prophet ﷺ wanted it. So the, some of the ulama, may Allah have mercy on them, gave them some beautiful advice. According to one narration, Imam Malik gave this advice. According to another narration, Imam Abu Yusuf, rahimahullah, gave this advice. And quite possibly, both of them may have advised the Abbasids. And what they said is that do not do it. Because you do not want to set a precedent. Whereby every new ruler that comes along wishes to plant 
and imprint his mark on the Kaaba, and merely because he doesn't want to keep the Kaaba according to the construction and the structure of the previous ruler, the Kaaba will become a plaything in the hands of rulers, kings, and emperors. So leave it as it is. So they left it. And the Kaaba has then, of course, it was rebuilt in the 17th century because it was again damaged. It was built by one of the Ottoman emperors, uh, who was actually called Murad Khan. But uh, there you go. So after, um, after the Quraysh, it was built by Abdullah ibn Zubayr. And after Abdullah ibn Zubayr, it was built by Hajjaj ibn Yusuf for the Umayyads. And after Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, no one. Of course, it was repaired on occasions, but as a complete reconstruction, complete, that only took place in the 17th year. Sorry, not 17th year, Hijrah, 17th century. So that was at the time of the Ottomans. It was damaged because of floods and other things. So again, it wasn't possible to repair it, so they reconstructed the Kaaba. But they did it exactly as it was from the time of uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and as it was from the time of the Prophet And the name of the Ottoman was Murad Khan. His name was Sultan Murad, but I think his surname is Khan. In any case, so the structure of the Kaaba as we see it now, the construction is from the time of the 17th century. This is Sultan Murad's, the Ottoman construction. But the layout, the structure, and the layout, and the form is as exactly as it was at the time of the Prophet So again, if someone questions, well, if this is the building of the Quraysh, and not the building of Ibrahim and Allah speaks about the construction of Ibrahim in the Qur'an, and we should be doing hajj to the house built by Ibrahim on his foundations. And the hatim is missing from the Kaaba. And the door should be lowered. And it should be two doors just as the Prophet wished. So why don't we do it? But exactly as the ulama said, and the simple answer is, if it was good enough for Rasulullah it's good enough for us. I suffice with that. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. I've mentioned more history than virtues. The Kaaba, it's being the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many virtues can I mention? So many, numerous, innumerable. It's the direction of our Qibla. We face it in Salah. We face it in every prayer. Our Salah is invalid if we don't face the Kaaba. The Kaaba is the destination of our Umrah, our Hajj, our pilgrimage. It's the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on earth. And it has all its virtues. And there are so many rewards for visiting the house of Allah. Its sanctity is so great. But uh, So I've mentioned more history than its virtues. But this was important in context of the hadith that we covered last week. I suffice with this. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who are honored with oft-repeated visits to his noble house. May he allow us to embark on many voyages of Umrah and Hajj repeatedly. And may he make them a means of forgiveness and salvation for us. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts 
those who have passed away today in the tragic incident of the crane collapsing in Al-Masjid Al-Haram. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts their intended hajj, their worship, their umrah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate their rank and indeed they passed away in the greatest of places. We pray that Allah makes them a means of forgiveness and shafa'ah for others too. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 Double seven one three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.